Diane Brimble was drugged without her knowledge by unscrupulous individuals intent on denigrating her for their own sexual gratification. That's the conclusion of an inquest into Ms Brimble's death on a cruise ship eight years ago. The finding turns on its head the notion that the mother of three agreed to take the drug GHB, which ultimately caused her death. Fellow passenger Mark Wilhelm pleaded guilty to supplying the GHB, but a manslaughter charge against him was dropped. Here's ABC court reporter Carl Herr. With the release of the inquest findings, Diane Brimble's ex-husband and former partner believe that someone has finally got it right. The family always believed that Diane uh, was not anything more than, than the mother and the friend and the sister that she was to her family, friends and every other individual that, she, that met her during her life. The fathers of Ms Brimble's children again heard the distressing but now familiar details of sexual degradation and her deteriorating condition on board the Pacific Sky in 2002. Only this time there was a key difference. The former Deputy State Coroner Jacqueline Millage said of Diane Brimble, she was unknowingly drugged by unscrupulous individuals who were intent on denigrating her for their own gratification. When one of eight men of interest, Mark Wilhelm, was convicted of supplying GHB, a judge said Ms Brimble had agreed to take the drug before having sex, but the coroner disagreed, adding that even when a doctor on board asked him if she'd ingested any drugs, he denied it. He could not even tell the truth to save her life. His insipid and cowardly response when asked by the doctor to try and proffer a reason why she lay dying or dead is indicative of his callous disregard for her decency and her safety, the court heard. He's got to live with that for the rest of his life, no matter what he does or where he goes. Two other men, Leterio Silvestri and Ryan Kuchel, were convicted of concealing the drug offence. Jacqueline Millich defended the release of graphic photos from the fateful cruise and, in general, the media's reporting of the inquest. Despite the obvious relief provided by these findings, Diane Brimble's family says further reform to the cruise ship industry remains unfinished business. According to the findings, P&O has taken steps to prevent a repeat of the Brimble case, but formal recommendations will be published later in the week. Carl Herr, ABC News. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope you've been enjoying our first two episodes of 2018. Today we're discussing a case that I've wanted to cover for a really, really long time and I've gone to write it quite a few times, but I've always been worried that I'm not going to do the victim justice. So I think I've finally sort of gotten there and I'm really excited to look into this case and um, speak about it because I think it's an important one. I just wanted to say before we start as well, I have had tonsillitis this week, which I'm just getting over now. So if I sound a bit weird, sorry about that. You actually sound like when I was coming over, I thought you were going to be quite bad, but you sound yeah, like Yeah, it's more the swallowing that's uh, okay. killing me. Yeah. Okay. Before we get into it also, I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you to some of our new patrons. Um, again, I'm not going to be saying all of them, but just going to kind of slowly make our way through. So a big thank you to Megan C, Taryn, Fiona, Vicky, Amanda, Natalie, Rachel, Jess, Casey, Georgia, Bridget and Raylene. Thanks so much for that, guys. And we actually have a new Patreon episode going out today as well, in which we will be discussing the Terry Missy Beavers murder, which took place in Midlothian, Texas in 2016. And along with that, also just a little Q&A to sort of beef the episode up a bit. Without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Bill to get into this week's case. Thanks, Harry. 
So today we are discussing the death of Diane Brimble. This case is a little bit of a different case for us. Some people consider it a murder case, some consider it manslaughter, and some consider it nothing more than a tragic accident. What is clear is that the victim, Diane Brimble, became lost in the degrading and awful circumstances that surrounded her death. So as we all know, going on holidays is supposed to be an exciting time, um, a time to sort of get away and take a break from the stresses in life. No doubt when the 42-year-old Diane Brimble boarded a P&O cruise ship, the Pacific Sky, on Monday 23rd of September 2002, she was looking forward to everything that she imagined lay ahead. Diane was travelling with her 12-year-old daughter Talia, her sister Alma, her niece Carrie-Anne and her friends from the Chard and Seto families. The Pacific Sky was leaving from Sydney on a South Pacific adventure cruise. Yeah, so I've actually been on a similar P&O cruise to that, and it kind of just goes around Noumea, New Caledonia, and all these really beautiful islands. So it would have been awesome for Diane, and I think as a single mum, she'd probably saved up for that for quite a while. It's a really good sort of um, good value kind of holiday, and especially with kids because they've got the kids' clubs. and Yeah, yeah. it sort of puts it into a bit of perspective, like you can relate to this. I can really relate, and that's what, yeah, it is really sad because I know... You know, how exciting those holidays yeah. are and for it to go so wrong for her, I just really, really feel for her. So. Yeah. Diane Brimble lived in the outskirts of Brisbane on the Redcliffe Peninsula with her daughter. She flew into Sydney with her daughter, her sister and niece a week before the cruise and they did a bit of sightseeing. On the day of the cruise, they met up with the Seto and the Chard families at the wharf. Diane was described as well-respected and well-known within her community. She has been described as a wonderful woman. She was a bit insecure about her body, as she had not yet lost the weight she had gained with her daughter Talia. In Diane's younger years, she had been described as one of the most pretty and outgoing girls around, and was said to have danced her way into the world. Diane met Mark Brimble, her first husband, at a nightclub, and he quickly fell in love with her enthusiasm for life. They married in 1982 and had two sons, Sebastian and Aaron. Eventually the couple separated and divorced, but remained good friends. Diane met the second love of her life, David, at a concert. He immediately noticed her beautiful looks and zest for life. They had their daughter Talia in 1990. Eventually Diane and David's relationship also became a little bit rocky and became more of an on-again, off-again relationship. Like her relationship with her ex-husband, she and David remained amicable through their separation. Diane loved to go out with friends, dance and have a few drinks and even as she got older she was still known to be the life of the party. She was known as a woman of high self-respect and moral standards. The one time she had had a one-night stand in the past, she had beaten herself up about it over and over. And just to point out, we're not saying there's anything wrong with having a one-night stand. We're just stating that it was not within Diane's nature to do so. So Diane was uh, what people would describe as sexually conservative and even considered prudish. Although she had experimented with marijuana in her 20s, very few of those close to her could, could imagine her voluntarily taking drugs at this stage of her life. And you might be wondering why we're actually talking about drugs and one-night stands, because it probably seems a little bit weird, Mm. but this information does become important later in this case. That first day on the cruise, Diane and her group settled into their cabins and began to explore the ship. Diane's cabin was D-188. 
She discussed plans for the holiday with her group over a couple of glasses of wine. Diane quickly bonded with the Chards family's 30-year-old son, Namu, with the two deciding they would go out dancing at the Starlight Disco on board that night. At 6pm that night, Diane's group was booked into the ship's restaurant for an early dinner. A little later, Diane was drinking and meeting other guests on the boat at the Legends Sports Bar and having a dance to the music. They were looking forward to heading up to the top level to really let their hair down at the disco. At 9pm, Diane's sister Alma picked up her daughter and niece from the kids' club and decided she would stay in the room with the kids. She told Diane she was welcome to head up to the disco and Talia could stay in the room. At around 10pm, Diane met up with Gamu Chard and headed up to the top level to let loose. She got to know other passengers and had some good conversations. She was very outgoing and not shy at all about meeting new people. They moved into the disco and had a dance. Gamu and Diane weren't the only people at the disco that night. And this brings us to the other people involved in this tragic case. Eight men from Adelaide had also been making their presence known at the disco that night. The men had all flown in to Sydney for their departure of the cruise that morning, but that wasn't going to stop them from partying hard that night. They were reportedly a tough-looking group. Many of them were quite muscular, and by many accounts, their presence was intimidating. Their ages ranged from 25 to 42 years of age. They were reported to be loud and intoxicated very early into the trip, and they were very liberal with their colourful language. Not only this, but multiple women report feeling quite uncomfortable in their presence. The names of the men were Mark Wilhelm, Leo Silvestri, Ryan Kuschel, Matthew Slade, Dragon Lozick, Peter Pantic, Charlie Camboris and Luigi Vital. The men occupied two cabins on the same deck as Diane, being cabins D182 and D178. One passenger, a young woman named Karen, who was on the cruise with a group of girlfriends, remembers that the group of men came over to her group for a chat that first day. They introduced themselves and the men freely told the girls about their escapades selling and taking drugs. These were not Karen's type of people. A little later, three teenage girls who were sharing a room bumped into three of the Adelaide men, Dragon, Pete and Mark, in the hallway near their room. When they stepped into their room, the three men pushed their way in without invitation. The men introduced themselves to the girls, who were only 16, 17 and 18 years old. They then asked the girls if they could go down on them. Disgusted, the girls asked them to leave the room. The men wouldn't leave. One of the girls opened the door and demanded the men to get the fuck out of our room. The men appeared irritated that the girls were kicking them out. When one of the girls inquired about Mark's black eye and suggested that he may have lost a fight, he punched his fist into the cabin wall right above her head. Once the men were out, the girls quickly locked the door, terrified. Not 30 seconds later, they heard the doorknob of their room jiggling. So the point of these examples of what the men were getting up to is to sort of paint a picture of what the guys were like, um, not to really make them look bad, but just, yeah, this is what their behaviour was like on the cruise. It's obviously it's not unusual to have drinks on a cruise and to sort of act up a bit, 
and even overindulge in your behavior, but it is unusual to not have enough self-awareness or care to think about how your behavior might be like affecting and impacting fellow travelers, especially young girls. That's yeah, young. it's very creepy. Teenagers and they're they're older. Yeah, yeah. Fate brought this group of men and Diane Brimble together that night at the Starlight Disco on the Pacific Sky, and this chance meeting would change the course of all of their lives. The men were the loudest group at the disco that night, and reportedly everyone else there noticed them. Their behaviour was off-putting to some guests, as it was attractive to others. According to reports, Diane liked the look of the men. She found their muscular look and outgoing personalities attractive. Security guards looking over the disco that night report having to warn the men multiple times to be more mindful of other passengers and respect the rules. Diane approached them a number of times to have a chat, as she did with many of the other passengers. So she was just there having a good time. She yeah, was just, just chatting socializing. To everyone. Yeah. Standard thing that you do on a cruise. Absolutely. When you're having drinks and you're in a disco. Yeah. And you're more social on a cruise for some reason. I don't know what it is, but it's like you're all the kind vibe. of trapped on the water yeah. having a good time. Yeah. You can see how, how Diane was feeling and getting yeah. amongst it. And probably the, in a way the guys too. Like it would have, not that I'm saying their behavior was okay, but it would have um, intensified their personalities, made yeah. them feel like they were just kings of the boat, like, you know. Some of the men made a negative assessment of Diane due to the fact that she wasn't as young or petite as the women that they usually found attractive. Reportedly, at times, they were quite rude to her. One of the men, Leo, told her to go away, as did another one, Pete. Diane seemed to be able to brush off this rejection and remained in the men's company. According to many of the people at the disco that night, the men appeared as if they were on drugs and a few passengers made a mental note not to leave their drinks uncovered or unattended. Diane, who was mildly intoxicated throughout most of the night, did leave her drink uncovered for an unknown amount of time. At around 4am, Diane was the last woman left at the disco with a group of men and a couple of security guards. It is noted that she appeared to be eager to spend time with the men. It is unknown whether Diane was interested in hooking up with any of the men or if she was just being friendly. Obviously, she's no longer able to tell her side of the story, but according to one of the security guards overlooking the party that night, Diane went from being mildly intoxicated to extremely intoxicated within a very short period of time. And how he describes her as fully stumbling, falling over, mm. slurring her words, having to lean on people for assistance. So like so more than alcohol, it sounds More than like. alcohol and having gone from seeming quite fine, just in good spirits yeah, to that. To being falling over. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen with such extreme progression usually when it's just alcohol. We are now going to run through the story of what happened to Diane pieced together through various resources and reports. It is hard to know how or why these circumstances came to be, and that is what makes this case so sad. By every account from the people who knew her, Diane was not acting like herself later that night, and they are sure that Diane would have had to be involuntarily drugged to have acted this way. The men she was hanging around with that night claim that everything that happened that night was consensual and done by Diane's free will. Either way, this woman, a mother, sister, lover, daughter and human being, was degraded and left to die in a way that is both cruel and inhumane. The next morning when Diane's sister Alma woke up, she noticed that Diane's bed was untouched and that Diane was nowhere to be seen. 
Initially, she wasn't too concerned. She thought maybe Diane had just sort of fallen asleep in a lounge chair after a big night or something like that. She decided that she would meet up with her friends and take the kids up to the buffet for breakfast. She saw Gamu, who'd been at the disco with Diane the previous night, and he told her that he had left at about 3am and Diane had stayed on at the disco. After breakfast, the group did a quick search of the decks in case Diane had fallen asleep, but there was no sign of her. That morning, a number of guests, including Alma, heard an alarm sound with a voice over the loudspeaker calling a code alpha, and obviously at the time, the passengers didn't know what this alarm meant. But what it did mean is that there was a life-threatening situation on board. Alma began to grow concerned when she saw a group of medical staff members blocking off a corridor for the ship. She asked whether the person requiring assistance was male or female, immediately thinking of Diane, but the staff members blocking the hallway didn't know. At 8.30am, one of the ship's nurses, Donna Winter, was asked to return a call to cabin D-182 about a passenger who had collapsed. Donna rang the cabin and spoke to a man who told her a woman had passed out after a night of drinking and they couldn't wake her up and weren't sure if she was breathing. Donna took a wheelchair, oxygen tank and the portable defibrillator and made her way to cabin D-182. When she arrived, she saw a woman laying on the floor on her side between the two bunks. It was Diane Brimble. The woman's skin was a tinged blue and she wasn't breathing and had no pulse. It was at this stage the code alpha was called. Donna asked the men whether the woman had any medical conditions, but they didn't know. After some time, a staff member from the ship approached Alma and asked her, do you know Diane Brimble? Alma replied, I'm her sister. The employee asked, does she have any health conditions? Alma replied, not that I'm aware of. Following that, the staff member left without offering any more information. Medical staff members continued to work on Diane, but despite their best efforts, they could not get her heart to beat. One of the nurses noticed a pill on the floor of the room and collected it for examination. At 9.03, Diane Brimble was pronounced dead on the Pacific sky, 100 nautical miles east off Crescent Head in New South Wales waters. One of the nurses asked the head doctor, Dr McAlliski, if he thought Diane's death seemed suspicious, to which he replied, of course. The first person that staff spoke to about what had happened was the man she had left the disco with the night before, and his name was Mark. He was about to give his first, very modified version of what had taken place that night. He told them he had met Diane at the disco and left with her at 4am. Both of them were very drunk and they had sex. He said he then left the cabin to visit his friends, leaving her there. He said when he returned, she was laying on the floor as if she had fallen off the bed and he called for medical attention. He was asked whether anybody in the cabin had ingested drugs, to which he replied they had not. When the doctor told him that Diane was dead, he appeared shocked and began to cry. At some stage during the resuscitation process, Leo, one of the other men from the room that night, said to the staff, that's my room, get the bitch out of my room. That's horrible, isn't it? Like, just to have someone talking about somebody else that way, especially when she's in that condition. That just makes, yeah. that's something that makes me feel like, I don't know, 
it's like the the men have kind of sort of stamped their own grave about the type of people they are with behavior like mm. that. And like I don't I'm not saying that they're that type of men 24/7 but that's how they were acting on this cruise by the sounds of it from all yeah. accounts from the other passengers and just these little comments that's how the men were acting on the cruise. Yeah. They might be upstanding guys in no. the rest of their life but no. Okay, no. Despite the fact that the cabin was ordered to be sealed off as a crime scene, one of the doctors accidentally allowed the men into the room, and it is unknown what evidence, if any, was removed at that point. Alma and Diane's daughter Talia were then informed of the devastating news that Diane had passed away. They were allowed into the ship's morgue to say goodbye to their beloved mother and sister one last time. The doctor on board made contact with Diane's GP, Dr. Alex Chi, and he confirmed that Diane had no medical or heart conditions and there should be no reason why she would die suddenly. Because of this, an investigation and autopsy would need to be conducted. To add insult to injury, it was ordered that Diane and Alma's cabin would need to be sealed off and Alma and Talia weren't allowed to grab any of their belongings from the cabin, which really makes me sick that the men were allowed, in. were allowed yeah. into their cabin and then these poor people who had just lost oh. Diane weren't even allowed to have report. Like, apparently they weren't even allowed a change of underwear. They yeah. had to wash their same pair of underwear for days on end. This case is really sad. It's really, it's sick. There's so it's many, really sick. Yeah, there's so many things in this case that just are horrible. Mm-hmm. It was decided that the head of security on board the ship, Stan Westwood, would would begin the investigation while they were waiting for investigators to board the ship. Westwood started by interviewing Mark, who told him that the event started when Diane dragged him into the ladies' room and began giving him oral sex. They had then moved into Mark's room. What Mark said raises questions about what actually happened in the room. He stated, Then we had sex with her. But he didn't specify who, apart from himself, had sex with Diane. This would not be the only time that he would say this. Mark had slept with Diane and said she then began showing interest in his friend Leo. He said that he then left the room. When Westwood called Leo in to be interviewed, it was noticed that he couldn't sit still. He was jittery and was chewing the inside of his mouth, all the signs of possible drug use. Leo said he had taken three sleeping pills and gone to sleep. He had woken up with a woman next to him and he had pushed her off the bed. Westwood noted how unemotional and blasé Leo appeared about the whole thing. The Water Police, or New South Wales Marine Area Command, were contacted at 9.30am that morning. They were directed by the Senior Deputy State Coroner to board the Pacific Sky and investigate the cause and manner of Diane's death on behalf of the New South Wales Coroner. After his interview, Leo went up to the top deck and saw Karen, the young woman that he had spoken to on the first day. He approached her and said, you missed a really exciting night last night. She also noted his jitteriness. He said, there's been a death on the ship. She said, oh my God, was it an elderly person? Obviously concerned. Leo replied, no, she died from suffocating on her own vomit. We found her. It happened in our room. He was full of excitement. We thought of throwing her overboard, but there was too much traffic. Initially, Karen didn't believe him, but soon after she learned that a woman had died that morning on board, she grew very concerned. She called the ship's staff and reported the incident, and soon after she was interviewed by Westwood. When the ship got to New Caledonia, 
two police officers, Detective Ozen and Detective Rolinsky, boarded the ship. They re-interviewed the men involved and then Alma before she, Talia and Carrie-Anne left the ship to get a flight home. At this stage, Diane's body was also taken from the ship and sent back to Sydney to be autopsied. While the detectives were out and about that night on the cruise, a woman approached them and said, I think you need to interview us, referring to herself and a group of girlfriends. Rumours were swirling around the ship that Diane's drink had been spiked and that she had been raped. Leo was reportedly overheard speaking to other passengers and telling them, we fucked the bitch, kicked her out of bed, and then she died. It's hard to even repeat what they've said. Like, as I was going through the different reports that, um, while I was doing my research, as I was just reading these statements and quotes from the, the men, and in particular Leo, I was just like... Shocked. Yeah, shocked. Yeah. It's hard to believe that somebody could talk about another human being like that. Absolutely. But this is proof. Mm. When the police interviewed the woman who had approached them earlier, they learnt more disturbing details about what had happened the night that Diane had passed away. The woman told the investigators that she and two of her bunkmates had been in their room when the men from the group had entered their cabin, clearly intoxicated. Ryan Kuchel had bought a plastic water bottle filled with a clear liquid that was tinged pink into the room. When the girls asked the men what the liquid was, they were told it was fantasy, which is a drug better known as GHB. We're going to give you just a quick rundown of what GHB is, just in case you didn't know. GHB is categorised as a depressant drug. The effect of the drug is based on several different factors, which includes the amount ingested, the strength of the batch, the size of the person taking it, the person's tolerance for the drug, and interactions with other drugs taken. The effects of the drug generally begin around 15 to 20 minutes after the drug is taken, and the more unpleasant side effects include dizziness, headaches, tremors, lowered heart rate, nausea, diarrhea, and urinary incontinence. The thing with GHB is it's very easy to overdose because the difference between the amount needed to get a high and the amount that can kill you is very small. If someone does overdose, their symptoms will be as follows. Irregular or shallow breathing, hallucinations, unconsciousness, seizures, and death. If GHB is used with alcohol, the risk of overdose is increased greatly. And obviously we know that Diane was drinking on her own accord, just having a few drinks. So if she was given GHB by the men, which we will discuss in more detail later, her risk of overdose was extremely high, especially because she wasn't a regular user of the drug. The women who spoke to the police also told them that the men had been passing around photographs of Diane in compromising and degrading positions. Some of the photos were of Diane having sex with Mark, which is obviously extremely demoralising. At some stage, one of the men, Charlie, entered the women's cabin and told the men that Diane had defecated and that Mark needed to go and clean her up. Instead of going to try and wake Diane up and seeing if she was okay, he took a number of degrading photos of her and came back to the room to show the group. One of the women, Kelly, was a nurse and she thought it was a bad sign that Diane had defecated, knowing that sometimes people's bowels are released at this time of death. Unfortunately, she didn't push the men to call for help at that point and we'll never know if it could have made a difference. 
Instead, Mark encouraged the group to go and look at Diane, laying in the cabin with no modesty left. This alone indicated that Diane had been laying in the cabin in that position for far longer than the men had stated in their initial interviews with security and police. Eventually, one of the women said to Mark, you better go check her pulse, mate, and see if she's okay, because that's a sign that someone's died. Mark left, and when he returned to the women's cabin, he said that he thought he had felt a pulse. The women were growing increasingly uncomfortable with the situation and eventually managed to get the men out of their cabin, not realising the severity of the situation they had just witnessed. At some stage, a camera memory card was handed into the lost property area of the ship and the police managed to get their hands on it. They realised that it belonged to the men and may have incriminating photos on it. They didn't want to risk losing any of its contents and sent it immediately to professional technicians who would be able to retrieve deleted data. Meanwhile, at the Glebe morgue, Diane's body had arrived for autopsy. The examination was performed by Chief Pathologist Dr Johan de Flew on the 28th of September 2002 at 10am. Diane's body showed signs that were consistent with having died from a drug overdose. Her lungs were filled with fluid, which is something commonly seen in someone who has stopped breathing due to overdose. Diane had a significant amount of alcohol and GHB in her system. Her blood alcohol level was 0.127, and the amount of GHB in her system has been described as a lethal dose. Unfortunately, because her death was attributed to drugs, at this stage it had to be ruled an accidental death, even if someone had given her the drugs without her consent. Despite this, investigators still had an open mind that Diane's death could be a homicide if the drugs that contributed to her death were given without her knowledge or consent. Another possibility was manslaughter, since Diane may have died as a result of unlawful or dangerous acts or negligence because nobody had taken the steps to assist Diane while she lay dying on the floor of cabin D-182. A computer expert examined the 64 megabyte memory stick found on the cruise ship. There were 41 photos that were easily visible and another 156 photos that had been deleted. 22 of the deleted images were taken between 4.50am and 6.55am that fateful day on the Pacific sky. Multiple photos showed Diane having sex with Mark as well as laying naked next to Leo. There was a photo of the two men sleeping on the bottom bunks in room D-182 with Diane on the floor in between the beds wearing nothing but black socks. In a number of photos, someone, was, someone has zoomed in on Diane's buttocks in an obvious attempt to humiliate her. The cruise ended and the men went back to their lives while Diane Brimble's family and friends were left to pick up the pieces of their lives and grieve for their beloved mother, partner, sister, daughter and friends. Seven months after Diane's death, investigators went to Adelaide to re-interview the men that had been around Diane that night. Mark Wilhelm had lawyered up at that point and he was no longer being cooperative. Even when shown the incriminating photos from that night and the autopsy reports, he said nothing. Leo was also uncooperative and refused to talk or give DNA when asked. Police had permission to tap the men's phones and they listened to hours upon hours of calls between the men as they began to get their case ready for the inquest into Diane's death. 
Calls between the men seemed to indicate the source of GHB on board the ship was Mark Wilhelm and also caught the men rehearsing and syncing up their story for the inquest. The aim of the inquest was to, was to determine the time and place of death as well as the manner on cause. The coroner concluded that Diane's death was sudden, unnatural, suspicious and unusual. It became clear the men were concerned about the implications of their involvement in Diane's death when they tried to challenge the coroner's jurisdiction in the investigation. They stated that the death happened outside of the jurisdictional limits of New South Wales. However, this did not end up stopping the inquest as they had hoped. The coroner's report of the inquest findings described the men of interest's backgrounds as a complete contrast to Diane Brimble's. The report details how the men all put in money to buy illegal drugs to smuggle into the cruise, including ecstasy and GHB. Most of the men had some form of criminal background, with Dragon Lozick even being accused of raping a 17-year-old girl in 1979. He was eventually acquitted after the defence argued it was consensual. During the inquest, it was revealed that Diane reportedly not only engaged in sexual intercourse with Mark, but also gave Leo oral sex in the cabin that morning. The truth behind the men's story and who did or did not engage in sexual acts with Diane was still questionable, even at the inquest, and many parties involved believed that the men were not telling the whole truth. Mark maintained throughout the inquest that he never supplied Diane with any drugs, despite the obvious fact that she had a lethal dose of GHB in her system when she died. Many of the men's assertions conflict with each other during the crucial hours of that morning, and the coroner calls their statements into question in the report. She stated that the only witness of the eight men that was credible was Matthew Slade. The other men only seemed to recall convenient memories. It was stated that Ryan Kutchell was the main orchestrator when it came to syncing up the men's stories to one version, and the other men seemed to call him for guidance on the matter. At the inquest, a number of witnesses came forwards to recall what they had seen that morning. Leanne MacDonald, who was staying in cabin 186, which was right next door to D182, heard the men return to their cabin at approximately 4.30am, followed by a lot of loud noises and thumping. Kelly Davis, one of the women in the cabin that the men visited that morning, claimed the men arrived at her cabin at approximately 6.30am, and left at around 8am. The men in attendance in her cabin were Pantic, Lossick, Wilhelm and Cutchell. The women from that cabin also stated that Lossick, Pantic and Cutchell admitted that they had watched Mark have sex with Diane. The women told the inquest of how they had lied to the men and told them that they would meet them for breakfast to get them out of the room. A witness named Serena Gollan walked past room D182 at approximately 5.30am and saw people laying everywhere in the cabin. She also saw Mark Wilhelm holding his penis and swinging it around, asking her if she wanted a bit of this. A man named Gregory Williams was staying in cabin D158 and at approximately 5 to 5.30am he heard a loud, a loud male voice state, the fucking slut shit all over me. A former scientist who specialised in medicinal chemistry, Dr Allender, 
gave evidence at inquest that a sufficient dose of GHB could lower someone's inhibitions enough that they may become involved in sexual activities that they wouldn't usually participate in. Because Diane had twice the amount of the recreational dose of GHB mixed with alcohol, this would have increased the disinhibiting effects of the drug even more. He believed that it was likely that if she was given a dose of GHB at the disco, it may have lowered her inhibitions to the point that she would enter cabin D-182 with the men. Dr Caldercott, an ER doctor at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, spoke at the inquest stating that the death from GHB can be prevented if a person is intubated and put on a respirator early enough. A timely call to the nurse could have been the difference between life and death for Diane. She would have been dead within an hour of the lethal dose. This indicates that she had been dead long before the men finally called for help. Leo Silvestri and Ryan Cutchell pled guilty to concealing a serious indictable offence, which related to the lies they were known to have told in regards to Diane's death. This suggested that both of them might have known about Diane's state and done nothing initially. Security personnel from the cruise spoke at the inquest about Diane's rapid decline at the disco from moderate intoxication to a drunken, staggering mess. Her state was consistent with her being given an unknown dose of GHB at the disco, which then led to her disinhibited sexual behaviour. It was also pointed out at the inquest that Diane's room was very close to D-182, so it was also a possibility that she was actually on her way to her own room when the men managed to convince her to come to theirs. A sexual assault specialist from the Royal North Shore Hospital, Dr Jean Edwards, gave her professional opinion that it was not at all within Diane's nature to have sex with multiple partners or with the door wide open to a public place. She was on holidays with her daughter, so it wasn't as if she had gone on holidays to, like, have a wild sex fest. Some professionals suggest that the men's intent might have been to throw Diane overboard, but by the time they got her dressed back to her original state, there were too many people wandering around the ship. The night after Diane's death, Mark Wilhelm was having sex with another woman. At the end of the coroner's report, the coroner, Magistrate Jacqueline M. Millage, agreed with Detective Ozen's initial thoughts that Diane did not knowingly consume or consent to taking GHB. She found that the cause of death was the effects of gamma-hydroxybutyrate and the manner of death was administration of the drug by a known person. In September of 2008, it was announced by the New South Wales Director of Prosecutions that Mark Wilhelm, Leo Silvestri and Ryan Kutchell would be facing charges in the death of Diane Brimble. Wilhelm was charged with manslaughter and the supply of a prohibited drug and the other two men were charged with perverting the course of justice. The first trial of Wilhelm in October 2009 resulted in the jury not being able to reach a verdict. In the second trial in April 2010, despite Mark pleading guilty to manslaughter, the judge wouldn't accept his plea. Judge Howie believed that Diane had taken the drug voluntarily and Mark could not have reasonably predicted such harm would come to her. Instead, Wilhelm pled guilty to the lesser charge of supplying a prohibited drug. The judge applied no penalty for the charge on the grounds that he believed Wilhelm had already suffered enough 
in the years of public scrutiny he went through. So this was a lenient judge. Very lenient. Yeah. So, and you can see from like the way the coroner um, sort of reacted to the case and all the facts compared to the way this Mm. judge has reacted. It's just, I guess, the luck of the draw of which judge you get and what their personal views are on this kind of behaviour. Absolutely. Yeah. Silvestri and Cutchell were given good behaviour bonds for their role in perverting the course of justice. P&O reached a settlement with the Brimble family for a significant amount of money, and as a result of this case, security measures on Australian cruises have been tightened with the introduction of sniffer dogs and CCTV cameras on board. This is a case that is polarising and sad. Poor Diane lost her life in an incredibly humiliating, demoralising and degrading manner which no human being deserves. While the men may have been let off easy... Their behaviour on board the ship lacked respect and kindness and we can only hope that they and other people like them learn something from the ordeal. Our thoughts go out to Diane's family, friends and loved ones. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope you join us again next week for a brand new episode and until then, please stay safe.